Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. We are in a time of transition. Uh, as a church, we don't know exactly when we'll move to our new building. Maybe next Sunday, that's what we plan for and still hope for. Uh, maybe the Sunday after, depending on uh, what we hear from the fire department and our occupancy permits and, and those things. But it's going to be soon. Uh, we're in a time of transition. And as a time of transition, it's a good time for us to take stock of who we are and where we are as a church. It's a good time for us to consider the kind of church we aspire to be. What ought our church to look like? What should we focus on? What kinds of things indicate health and vitality in the church? What model should we pattern ourselves after? These are great questions to ask. Uh, what do we aspire to be as a church? What does God call us to be? What's our model? How are we doing? It's a great time for us to ask those kind of questions, to take stock during a time of transition. Acts chapter 2 provides a template for us to hold ourselves up to. In Acts chapter 2, we really have the model. This is the spirit-filled apostolic church in action. What did it look like? How do we measure up to what we see here when we compare ourselves to this picture that Luke paints for us of the early church? Of course, early in Acts chapter 2, uh, it's Pentecost, it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on the church, these disciples who have gathered in Jerusalem. And then Luke gives us four marks as a way of summarizing the life of God's people now that Jesus has poured the Holy Spirit out. Peter preaches the first sermon of the new era. Uh, about 3,000 people are converted and baptized or added to the church for the tiny band of disciples that existed before that. What did these 3,000 people do? Well, four things that Luke tells us, four things he identifies in verse 42. They submitted to apostolic teaching. They continued in fellowship with one another. They broke the bread together, obviously a reference to the Lord's Supper. And then finally, they joined together in corporate prayer. Those four things. We have doctrine, community, Eucharist, and liturgy. Those things taken together really make up the life of the church. If you ask, what does the, the spirit-filled New Covenant church look like? This is it. This is Luke's summary. So let's unpack each one of those. This is really kind of a, a, a back-to-basics, a returning-to-basics kind of sermon. But again, I think it's a good way for us to, to ask these questions. What kind of church do we aspire to? How are we doing? So the first mark we see is they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The faithful church faithfully preaches and embraces the truth God transmitted through the apostles. The faithful church is a church that faithfully teaches the word of God. The faithful church is a church that faithfully believes what is taught from the word of God. The faithful church is a teaching church. It's a place where God's word is preached. Um, and I'm a preacher, obviously. Uh, so one thing I do is I listen to a lot of preaching. I listen to a lot of preaching because that's a good way to kind of get a feel for uh, what's going on in, in the wider church, to kind of have your finger on the pulse of what's happening out there. And I have to say that uh, listening to a lot of preaching, it's amazing how much preaching out there today aims more at being relevant than being true. 
Uh, it aims at being helpful rather than being truthful. So you can say it aims at making people feel good rather than become good. And maybe that's because a feel-good message attracts more people than a become-good kind of message does. That, that may very well be the case. But whatever we want to say about that, there's a lot of preaching out there today that has very little to do with the Word of God. The reality is what people need from church is what they cannot get anywhere else. They don't need jokes. I'm not against telling jokes from the pulpit occasionally, but that's not what people need. They don't need clever stories or illustrations. They don't need self-help cliches. What people need is the gospel. And to give people the gospel, to give them apostolic doctrine, is to give them Jesus. What people need more than anything else is Jesus. And the way to give them Jesus is through this teaching, through this apostolic teaching. A church that is faithful to the teaching of the apostles, to the doctrine of the apostles, is going to be a church that presents Jesus to the people and that gives Jesus to the people through the preaching of the word. There's nothing more important than that. May CPC always be a church that gives you Jesus through the teaching of the word. What does this mean? Well, the apostles' teaching comforted people because it proclaimed forgiveness. They proclaimed forgiveness of sins. Our sins are forgiven through the cross of Christ, through his death and resurrection, through Christ's shed blood. All who trust in Christ are righteous before God, even as he is righteous. The only way unholy people can stand before a holy God is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But this preaching not only comforted, you see this, you know, if you ask, what is this apostolic doctrine? Well, if you look at the sermons in the book of Acts, you can really look at the whole New Testament. This is the apostles' doctrine. This is their teaching. This teaching not only comforts, but it also challenges and convicts. Yes, it comforts people, but it also challenges and convicts people. Teaching that is faithful to the apostles is going to be teaching that confronts sin as God's word defines it. It's going to be faithful preaching, and faithful preaching resists fads and fashions. In fact, in many cases, it will challenge the fads and fashions of the day. It's going to challenge especially those sins we are most li likely to fall into ourselves. It's easy to hear a sermon about other people's sins, the sins that are out there that other people are committing. But faithful preaching is going to confront us where we live. It's going to confront our own sins. It's going to be preaching that aims at repentance. It's going to be preaching that aims at transformation. It's going to be preaching that aims at renewal and maturation. It's going to be preaching that aims at deepening and strengthening our faith. It's going to be doctrinal preaching. This is how J.I. Packer describes it. Packer says, Doctrinal preaching certainly bores the hypocrites, but it is only doctrinal preaching that will save Christ's sheep. The preacher's job is to proclaim the faith not to provide entertainment for unbelievers. In other words, to feed the sheep rather than to amuse the goats. May CPC always be a church where the sheep are fed. Well, more than anything else, that's what we're doing, is nourishing you through God's word. John Stott explains it this way, the role of preaching. He says people's lives are very much a reflection of the preaching they hear. It says a low level of Christian living is due more than anything else to a low level of Christian preaching. The lives of the people very much reflect the preaching they hear, what they hear from the Word of God. We want to be people who are saturated with the Scriptures, who are soaked in the Word of God. That's our hope. That's what we aspire to as a church. Now, this doesn't mean that the Word of God automatically always brings salvation and transformation. It's not just what is taught, but it's how you hear. 
have to receive the word with an open heart. You have to be willing to hear God's word and take in what it says and then put it into practice in your life. Been preaching through James off and on. James talks about not just being a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. To hear it and then to put it into practice. If you don't do that, the word will still have an effect on you, but it's going to have an effect of hardening you rather than softening you. Of hardening you in unbelief rather than softening you and, and leading you to greater obedience. Preaching always has an effect. This is how Origen described it in the, in the early church. So the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun, the same word that brings one sinner to salvation hardens another in his unbelief. It's not just be a church where the word is taught, but we've got to be a church where the word, when it's heard, is then put into practice, where it's received with an open and believing heart. May TPC always be a church where the gospel is heard and believed, where the whole counsel of God is heard and then put into practice. Where the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation is taught. There are too many churches out there wasting time talking about irrelevant things. Meanwhile, the enemy closes in. May TPC uphold apostolic doctrine. May we go to war with the idols of the world and their false teaching with the true teaching of God's word. That's the kind of church we aspire to be. It starts with apostolic doctrine. But there's a second mark Luke goes on to give us. Community, or fellowship, or the Greek word here is koinonia. Maybe you're familiar with that term. Koinonia. Uh, the word means fellowship. It, it, it describes the bonds of love between members of a family or members of a society. Koinonia is formed by love. Koinonia is formed when the Holy Spirit knits our lives together. When the Holy Spirit weaves our lives together. And so koinonia gives rise to perichoresis, if I could use another fancy Greek term. Koinonia, fellowship, perichoresis, that's the term that uh, the early Christians used to describe how the different members of the Trinity indwell one another, the Father's in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. That's also a term they used to describe the church, how we are to indwell one another. We're to share our lives as a reflection of the Trinity. To be made in the image of God, or now remade in God's image, if we have been redeemed by Christ, means we're going to reflect God's triune nature. The persons of the Trinity indwell one another. They share their lives with one another. And so it should be in the church. We should indwell one another. You should be in me. I should be in you. We should share our lives together in this way. Now, wait a second. That doesn't sound like the church. The church I know is a mess. The church can really, really be messy. Yes, church life is always messy. Church life is always messy because of sin. Sin gets in the way. Sin is, uh, is always what is getting in the way and interrupting things. It's, uh, it's what um, gums things up. Sin causes friction to build up between members of the body. We need love to lubricate our relationships so we don't melt down. The church is held together, held in communion by love. What does love do? Love in scripture is not just an emotion, it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. Love is primarily demonstrated through action. So what is love all about? Well, uh, in scripture, what do we find love doing? Love serves. Love helps. Love cares. Love weeps with those who are weeping. More than anything else, love forgives. Perhaps the most godly 
in a sense of God-like action of all that you can undertake is to forgive the sins of another. Love forgives. There has to be forgiveness if church life is going to work because there will be failures, provocations, and offenses. What do you do when you've been wrong? You let love cover a multitude of sins. You forgive those who have wronged you. There's no way forward. There is no way forward without forgiveness. If church life is going to work, if there's going to be a communion of the saints, if there's going to be a fellowship, there must be forgiveness. But of course, forgiveness is not all. Uh, there must also be hospitality and generosity. And in fact, Luke shows us these. If you look at verses 44 to 46, you see hospitality and generosity. As these early Christians shared resources with those in need, as they shared meals in one another's homes. It's not just a matter of opening up your heart. It's a matter of opening up your wallet. It's a matter of opening up your home to one another. These are the practices that build koinonia. The one thing we are clearly seeing in America today is the breakdown of community and the terrible fruit that bears. You see it in our lonely, fractured society. Statistics come out every now and then. Uh, how many people don't really have a close friend? And the numbers are staggering, especially for younger people. How little community they have, how little fellowship they have, how little friendship they have in their lives. And you know what? People who do not have community, people who don't have any kind of koinonia in their lives, often uh, will find some kind of substitute. They'll look for some kind of substitute for that missing point in here. They'll try to fill that void in some other way. And so a lot of times they'll turn to something like national politics for that sense of belonging, that sense of identity, that sense of hope. See, people who don't have community are easily radicalized. They don't have skin in the game. Uh, it's easy for isolated individuals to become destructive Sometimes they destroy themselves, especially through things like addiction or even suicide, the ultimate point of self-destruction. Sometimes they destroy others through hatred, through violence. What's the answer to this social breakdown? The answer is the church's koinonia, the communion of the saints, the fellowship that we share in Christ, the hospitality and generosity of God's people. The sharing of our lives with one another in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Now, no doubt we have differences among us, differences of opinion, differences of views on all kinds of things. Sometimes, no doubt, we have differences of opinion in terms of how we ought to be responding to the virus, to, uh, to the pandemic uh, that is around us. Uh, but what we need to understand, whatever our differences are, this is what we must always keep in mind. What unites us always vastly outweighs those things where we have our differences. Yes, we have our differences, but the things that unite us vastly outweigh those differences. If you put them in a, in a scale, the things we have in common, life in Christ, the forgiveness of sins in Christ, membership in Christ's church, all those things vastly outweigh whatever other differences we might have in, uh, in our opinion about different things. So, let's ask this question. In a time of transition, I think this is good for us to consider. Does TPC foster this kind of community? Does TPC foster this kind of fellowship, this kind of koinonia, the way that we should? Do we foster this kind of shared life, this kind of parakaresis, this kind of mutual indwelling in one another? Do we foster 
If Satan wants to make people think, oh, I could never fit into the church, Satan tempts people in this way. Satan wants people to think, oh, I could never fit into that church. I could never fit into that community. There's no place for me there. When you think that way, that is the voice of Satan. But we need to push back against that and show one another, yes, you fit in. And yes, I fit in. And yes, we all have our place in this body. God has called us to share life together, to be the church together, to have this fellowship, this koinonia together. Out of community, well, I should put it this way, uh, our community, the kind of community I've just described, our community flows out of communion. Our community flows out of communion. And that's really the next item in Luke's list here. He talks about the breaking of the bread. Most English translations drop the article, but it is there. It's the breaking of the bread. So this is special bread. We all know what it is. It must be the Lord's Supper. This is Luke, Luke's shorthand way of describing the Eucharist. It's kind of his shorthand uh, for the Lord's Supper. And what that tells us then here in Acts 2 is that these Christians were gathering for worship regularly, and when they came together, they not only heard a sermon, there was not only the apostles' doctrine being proclaimed in the church, and there was not only koinonia, they were not only sharing their lives as they came together for worship, but they were also eating bread and drinking wine together. They were sharing a meal from a common table. When they came together as a church, one of the things they did is they would break the bread together. They would share in the Lord's Supper together. In fact, it's interesting, later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, Luke describes Christians coming together for worship this way. He says, they came together on the first day of the week to break the bread. Luke can just say, Luke can describe going to church as coming together on the first day of the week to break the bread. That's what we've come here to do today. We usually say, I'm going to church. But you could say, I'm going to break the bread. Because that's what we come together to do. Now, obviously we do other things besides that. But there is something central or climactic about the Lord's Supper. It is the climax of our time together. And this is because the Lord's Supper really summarizes the whole gospel, and it summarizes the meaning of the church. If you want a really good summary, a really good encapsulation of the whole gospel, everything that God does for us in Christ, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the, 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 the perfect picture, the perfect ritual to summarize all that God has done for us in Jesus. He gives us Jesus for, for our salvation. We commune in Christ. That's what our salvation is all about, communing in Jesus together. And, of course, it's all about the meaning of the church uh, as well. We share a table. There's a kind of hospitality and generosity that's being practiced right here as we share the Lord's Supper together. We're enacting all of these kinds of things. It's perhaps the ultimate form of Christian koinonia, to share the bread and share the wine together. What does it mean to be in the church? Look at the Lord's Supper. The people who share their lives together because they share this meal together. One thing that's interesting uh, is how churches have responded to the COVID lockdown. I've, I've talked to a lot of Christians in different uh, parts of the country as well as around here. It's just interesting to see this. Some churches like ours try to gather again in person as soon as it was possible. Yes, we took a few weeks off where we did not meet together in person. We needed to do that. We believed it was the wisest course of action so we could assess the risk and see just what we were up against. But as soon as it became possible for us to meet again, we started that together. A lot of churches haven't done that. A lot of churches even now are continuing to 
uh, simply offer something online. I won't call it church online because you can't do church online. Church, uh, the very word church means assembly or congregation. But a lot of churches have gone online and seem very content to stay online. The in-person gathering doesn't seem to be a priority. I would say how a church views and practices the Lord's Supper has a lot to do with that. When it is possible to meet, we should meet. Scripture is really, really clear how important it is for us as a, as a local body, as a local family of Christ, as a local manifestation of the body of Christ, to come together in person whenever it's possible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says this, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but exhort one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10 describes Christians who have forsaken the assembly. They're not gathering together. They're not congregating, assembling together. Some of you made this a habit. They're regularly out of church, not gathering. And so the writer of Hebrews says, exhort one another all the more to continue meeting as you see the day approaching. Now, what is that day? Well, it's a day of judgment. But it's not the day of final judgment. It's actually a, a day of judgment that for us has already taken place. It's a day of judgment that took place in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Think about the context here. Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are facing a test of loyalty. These Jewish Christians are facing a severe test of loyalty. The Jewish war is about to break out between the Romans and the Jews in Jerusalem. And these Christian Jews are being pressured by their countrymen, in many cases their family members, to come back and take their last stand in, in Jerusalem to defend the temple. That would be the patriotic thing to do. That's what, that, that, that's, that's what the prophets would have wanted you to do, is defend the temple, right? Because the temple's God's house. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, the temple's really not God's house anymore. The whole Old Covenant has become obsolete. It's about to vanish away. The temple's going to be destroyed in 70 AD. And these Christians knew that. They knew it was coming because Jesus had prophesied. Jesus had said the temple would be destroyed. That would be the end of the Old Covenant order, the end of Old Covenant Judaism. So here you have these Christians who are under pressure to stop meeting. It was dangerous to meet. It was dangerous for them to assemble together. War is on their doorstep. Persecution is knocking at the door. And Hebrews 10 says, keep meeting anyway. It's so important to meet, even if it's dangerous, keep meeting. To a church that faced much greater danger in meeting than we face, whatever dangers we face, are not nearly that great. And the writer of Hebrews says, keep meeting. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. One of the key things that happens when we meet that we cannot do if we don't meet is break the bread together. You maybe can do some things online, but you can't do this. You cannot share the Eucharist together in that way. What happens when we share the Eucharist, when we break the bread together? We renew covenant. God renews his covenant with us at the table, and we renew our covenants with one another. Where there is no assembly, no congregation, where there's no breaking of the bread, there is no church. This is what manifests the church and makes the church the church. This is how you identify the church. They're the people who come together and share in the Lord's Supper. May TPC always be a church that regularly gathers to break the bread. To celebrate this feast of feasts. To celebrate this feast of feasts with joy and with thanksgiving. With love. 
may we remember when we come together to share this feast, may we remember the most important ingredient in this meal, our faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ and love towards one another. When you look at the recipe for the Lord's Supper, these are the ingredients that matter more than anything else. Faith toward Jesus and love towards one another. That's what comes. That's what we come to the table to do, to express our faith in Jesus, have our faith in Jesus strengthened, and to share in love for one another. And finally, then, there are the prayers. The Spirit-filled church is a praying church. God commands the church to do many impossible things. God commands the church to do many things that are beyond our reach, beyond our capacity, beyond our ability. He commands us to do things like to love one another, to love as we have been loved, to forgive as we have been forgiven. Those are things that I would say are humanly impossible for us to do. He commands us to put off the old ways, the old way of life, the sin that entangles us, and instead to run our race as his new humanity in the strength of the Holy Spirit, in obedience to him, running in the paths of righteousness. He commands us to live without fear, to live without worry. Those are superhuman things to do in this present moment. He commands us to be content, to be joyful, to do our work with excellence. He commands us to change the world. We are commanded to do nothing less than to change the whole world. Do any of you have the power to do that? Do you have power to transform our culture, indeed every culture? That's what the Great Commission is all about. That's the greatness of the Great Commission. We're commanded to go out and make the world nations Christ's disciples. So that every nation becomes a, a Christian nation, as it were. Every civilization becomes a Christendom. So every ruler bows the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and kisses the Son, as Psalm 2 describes. That's what we're commanded to do. All of these things are obviously beyond our reach. They're beyond our power. Where do we get the strength and the wisdom to do them? In prayer, and only in prayer. In prayer, we cast ourselves upon God. We throw ourselves upon God's mercy. We confess our utter and complete dependence upon God for everything. And that's why prayer can never be a last resort. It must be the first weapon we grab hold of when we go out to battle. Prayer is simply how a life of faith and love expresses itself. If you have faith, you will pray. It's that simple. Prayer is how we conquer. It's how we fight and win our battles. Now I think when Luke here describes the prayers of the early church, he especially has in view the Psalms. Because if you skip ahead to chapter 4, when these early Christians go to pray, what is the prayer on their lips? It's simply Psalm 2. They pray. It's probably a sung prayer. They simply pray Psalm 2. This, this is how it works. Like a baby learning to talk must first be spoken to, so we learn to communicate in prayer, first by hearing God's word. But really what that means is that what Luke especially has in view is liturgical prayer. We could say what Luke really has in view is liturgy. God speaks and we respond. That's how the liturgy works. That's what the liturgy is all about. It's a dialogue between God and his people. God speaks and we respond. And our responses, you can call that prayer. So prayer here really just means liturgy. It means corporate prayer. It means sung prayer. Now obviously it also includes prayers you do on your own. But Luke here is talking about the corporate life of God's people. 
people. He's talking about a church that prays together, that sings their prayers together. He's talking about a, a, a church that comes together to do the liturgy. I mean, the, the, the Book of Common Prayer is a book of liturgy. It's called a Book of Common Prayer because all of the liturgy is cast in the form of prayer. That's how it works. But this is what you need to understand. In prayer, there is power. In prayer, there's power to do things we can never do on our own. That's why we go on to talk about the signs and wonders they do. In prayer, there is power. Power to change us, power to change the church, power to change the world. And so we should be a people who pray at all times and in all circumstances. When you're happy, pray. When you're sad, pray. When you're doubting, pray. When you're worried, pray. When you're scared or lonely, pray. When you're discouraged or disappointed or discontent or depressed, pray. When you're thankful, pray. When you're angry or confused, pray. This is the kind of church we should be. A church that prays at all times. It is always the right time to pray, and especially to pray together. Yeah, pray on your own. These practices should spill over into our private lives and our homes and our families. But it's especially if you're describing the corporate life of God's people, we should be a praying church. Look within here now. Are we a praying church in this way? Do we pray the way we should, as fervently and consistently as we should? Are we a church that prays at all times? Do we pray for the overthrow of God's enemies, for his justice and peace to prevail? We aspire to be a praying church. Do we do it? We need to understand our prayers move the world. Our prayers remake the world. Prayer in the deepest way possible makes us partners with God in what he is doing in the world. In prayer, you become God's partner. God is your prayer partner. In prayer, you join in with what God is doing in the world. So these are the identifying marks Luke gives us of a new covenant, post-Pentecost, spirit-filled church. This is what the church should look like. This is what we should aspire to. This is the model. It's a great measuring stick for us. Now, of course, no church is perfect. But it's helpful to be reminded of what we ought to be, what we aspire to be. Eugene Peterson once said, there's no such thing as a successful church, because every church is a community of sinners. Every church is led by sinners. Every member is still a sinner. The church is never what it should be, not this side of, uh, of glory, not this side of the resurrection. But in the church, our sin never has the last word. The gospel always has the last word. God's work through the church, God's work through the gospel gives us hope. God forgives our sin, we forgive one another's sin. God enables repentance from sin, and we encourage this repentance in one another. We are saved into the church and through the church, so you can really say the church is indispensable to the gospel. The church is indispensable to salvation. This is what salvation looks like. You see this at the very end of Acts chapter 2. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Salvation and, 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 and being part of the church, being part of this kind of body, go together. The church is the place of God's salvation. The site where God does his central work in the world of calling, claiming, converting, and cleansing sinners. What is the church? The church is Christ's body. Many members all working together, sharing a common life, where there's unity in diversity. Diversity in unity. What is the church? The church is Christ's bride, his beautiful, holy, 
bride being washed and made spotless, his bride purchased with his blood and redeemed for eternal glory, looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb at the last day when we feast with Christ for all eternity. This is who we are. This is who we long to be. This is who you are. This is who I am. It's who we are together. And this is our hope, that God is doing these things, that he is making us into this kind of people, this kind of community, this kind of church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.